Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the latest edition of the QSR Web Podcast with me, your host, QSR Web Editor, Shelley Whitehead. And we have a number of great guests today, beginning with Edible Brands President and CEO, Chuck Book, coming to us from the peach state of Georgia, where the company makes its home and puts more than its fair share of those peaches on its menu across edible arrangements, incredible edibles, and the soon-to-launch Edible. Then after that, we'll be checking in with two attorneys from the Mesner Reeves law firm to get their expert insights into liability issues restaurateurs need to know about in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic with respect to workers, customers, and modified operational models. But we start now with Edible Brands which a whole lot of consumers and restaurateurs know as the parent company of Edible Arrangements and that CBD-infused food startup, Incredible Edibles. But our guest today is here to tell us about yet another brand, Getting Ready to Launch, which will actually be a QSR that carries everything from smoothies and chocolate-dipped fruits to Froyo fruit salads not Froyo fruit salads, but Froyo and fruit salads, and yes, CBD-infused menu items. And the name of that brand is simply Edible. The name of one of its leaders is Edible Brands President and COO, Chuck Book, who is right here. And welcome, Chuck. Thank you so much for having me, Shelley. Did I get that all right? <laughs> Can you clarify with us a little bit about you know, what um, all the interrelationships, if any, there are between Edible Brands brands? Well, f first, you, you got it right. I think I have to take a recording of what you just stated and make sure I repeat it, I hit play every time someone asks me about the relationship uh, <laughs> of, the, of all the brands. But, but to, you know, to add on to your point, yeah, yes. Um, you know, we, we are in a position now uh, the word edible itself has been, and we've had the opportunity to own the legal rights to it for quite some time. And uh, most recently, one also the word edibles at a plural, who knew that little letter would make such a big difference. But <laughs> in relationship to that, um, the reason why it was such an important pursuit for us is to ensure that we are forming stores that are destinations um, when it comes to food as, it, as its entity. Uh, we have our arrangements, of course, but affinities of those arrangements when it comes to thinking of the smoothies, thinking of um, the, the popcorn that we are offering within our locations right now. But more importantly, just the destination itself that becomes a, a space where someone could come and consume food at its wholesome uh, perspective uh, and yet hang out there if necessary too. Um, so that that is... Uh, a new journey uh, that we've been constituting over these past uh, several months. So Sensible is kind of, a, it sounds like a main area of focus for you. Can you tell us about the menu there and where you're going to open as well as how your plans are being affected by the many business restrictions of the pandemic? Absolutely. You know, we, what we've noticed, um, we have today, the recipe at its 90th percentile. You think of the product that we already offer being there. Most of our locations right now uh, tend to do more delivery than sitting, right? 
Uh, and it's because of the architecture of the locations themselves is how we've designed them with a small front and more focus on the operation area, the back, the, which we call the zone two. Uh, tomorrow, um, it, the offerings have been uh, justified, for lack of a better word. We've introduced uh, produce boxes right now this past since post-COVID-19. It was introduced on March 14th and has been such a success for us. And this is just taking fresh fruit and delivering it to our consumers and now adding fresh vegetables and delivering it, delivering it to our consumers, selling over 2,000 boxes a day. And what we've noticed is that in this case, the menu was already part of the edible, but a COVID-19 case put us in a position to have to deliver it to our consumers that perhaps maybe couldn't just leave their household or uh, were health workers, uh, individual that just didn't have time to go to the grocery store or couldn't. So as a result of that, I think post COVID-19 or as we continue to go through it, as edible is introduced, that segment will still be part of it, which is to deliver um, uh, food to such as uh, the produce and the vegetable to constituents within our community. Um, and yet also have an environment where individuals could come when we pass through this entire challenge that we're facing of you can't go anywhere. You know, it's fascinating how quickly you all were able to kind of turn on a dime and adapt to this, um, particularly with, you know, the produce and then the vegetables. And what did you say, 2,000? boxes yeah. a day? Yep, over 2,000 boxes a day. Where is Edible going to open first and when? Um, and I know that's kind of a, a rolling target probably since everything is changing day to day with this pandemic, but um, like where you think the first store is going to open and when and kind of set the scene a little bit about, you know, what can I, what can I find if I go there? Absolutely. So, you know, the when, the where is easier to answer. It's going to be in Atlanta. Uh, we recently moved our headquarter from uh, Connecticut to Atlanta and, and um, would want this to be close to the office with a site that uh, we're keeping close to our chest. Um, in, in terms of when, um, you know, time now is we must be fluid with it, right? You know, think of the construction challenges the individuals are facing yeah. that in some, some capacity you just can't even build because uh, social distancing may be a challenge, right? Uh, permitting may be a challenge in some counties that we're seeing right now as we're applying to do construction and remodeling in all the locations. So we, we, we know that there are KPIs that we perhaps may not be able to move as fast as we want to. Uh, so we will remain fluid, uh, but the goal is to, in 2020, um, we will absolutely have one of those standing and uh, stay tuned for the invitation to come. In terms of, can you think of the location itself, Shelley? I mean, if I was to invite one to close their eyes and just follow me through this imaginary place, what they will expect to see in this location um, is fresh fruit, your ability to customize your arrangement to your liking, your ability to select a container that is emotionally uh, perhaps uh, a component of why you're buying it, your ability to try 
fresh fruit that is cut and make your own smoothies while you're standing there, made in front of you, dip your strawberry while you're standing there, the theater that exists in, in foodness. But, and, and we have to play into that emotion because we know what, what has given us success over these years is that people that buy our product are usually trying to express an emotion. So I like to call the edible product, edible arrangement, edible and edible product, emotional currencies. And what they do is when you decide to express some type of emotion, our product um, has a role to play in expressing such. So we want to make sure that this experience, as someone is trying to express it, they get to experience it within our stores also, which is something we just haven't had a chance to really explode over time. That's terrific. You know, um, I, I know there's been a lot written about the language of flowers that was so popular among the Victorians. Maybe you're introducing the language of fruit. <laughs> that, is, that is correct. Uh, you know, I'm going to steal that from you. Hopefully you don't have the copy written anywhere and I'll send you some arrangement as a trade, as a, as a barter. But yes, the language of fruit, taking that. <laughs> uh, how strategically is Edible Brands approaching its actions with its brands to both make it through the crisis and then thrive on the other side of it? Um, just as a general strategy, does, is it brand dependent or is it something across all brands? You know, I'll tell you, the, the driving factor right now for all of our decisions um, all of my decisions and my team's decisions is, is really centered around what is the right thing to do, right? You know, Shelly, historically, um, from an enterprise perspective, businesses have the luxury to have quantitative data analysis that you could conduct. Um, with COVID-19, I mean, there's no historical data that you could really use as a point of reference to know how, what to do, right? Uh, I think that it's a surprising element to all of us and all sectors. So as a result of that, um, unless you were around in 1918 and saw what happened, you really don't know how to conduct business. So you're left with two things. One, you must be fluid, right? But second, most importantly, you gotta ask yourself what's needed. What will be needed in the community? That's what drove the idea of creating a fresh fruit because we have the component in our stores. We just decided to deliver them. And that became a business of its own. Uh, we we're just thinking we'll do maybe 150, 200 a day and you know, help some families here and there, but it ended up being a commodity, a category in which we're playing in, the idea of delivering whole fruits and whole vegetables to individuals. And now uh, many more to come within that category. Stay tuned over this next week or two. So with that being said, um, I think the strategy that I must share with um, peers or friends out there within the same industry will be, you know, let's ask ourselves what is needed. Um, and let's ask ourselves, can we provide what's needed and what would it take to provide it and start um, building that approach as you start with question number one, which is what is needed by the community. What a great way to, um, yeah, filling the need. Um, and boy, there are a lot of them right now. What do you see as the single biggest strength of Edible as a QSR, you know, among that vertical and now both in the pandemic and these uh, 
very strange um, conditions and after business begins to return to more normal? You know, one of our greatest strengths is we have franchise partners that are able to deliver to over 70% of the U.S. livable zip code in less than an hour. Um, that's a strength that would be hard to replicate or to build, quite frankly, it took us 20 years to do that. So as a result of that, I think it's one of our greatest strengths. And, you know, in each one of those communities and zip codes we're able to reach, um, the person or persons or families who are in charge of those stores live in those neighborhoods. So they can give you this qualitative analysis of what's happening in their neighborhood better than anyone can. When you create a bridge between what you could obtain from a quantitative analysis and that feedback that you obtain for free from these franchise partners within these communities, I tend to think that you're more equipped than many more out there. I wonder, are there um, specific things that maybe you all are picking up um, in that kind of qualitative reporting from franchisees about differentiations in different parts of the country um, that you can disclose here? Or, you know, maybe you can just tell us whether you're seeing that now. No, we, we're absolutely seeing it now. And I'll share some. You know, we have franchise partners in Long Island who I was just on the call with who are sharing um, uh, the challenges they are facing in terms of uh, what this pandemic has um, pushed them to see, unfortunately, and how they're responding to it. And we take those examples and share it with the one in Seattle who select and pick from those good suggestions from a category placement to how best to manage the store to how to help the community to who do you hire and how do you hire to best practices sometimes before even we see um, um, you know, national amplification of it, such as taking the temperature of someone before they come in the store. This was a discussion of a franchisee way prior. And we're trying to figure out how do you do it? Curbside pickup. This was pretty new to us. We never had such thing. We had stores and people came in and picked up the product from the store and left. This Easter, someone uh, could have a curbside pickup at Edible or just have it delivered to make life even easier. Um, so so I, I, I think that those are a few examples of things that we've seen just more recently, but we depend on those examples uh, to run the business in the best way possible. It sounds like true, true strength in numbers. Um, I'm wondering if conversely, you can maybe give us an idea of the biggest challenge to edible uh, that you're seeing now, and maybe even if you've identified for, you know, quote unquote, normal, normal conditions. That's a great point. Um, you know, I think one of our greatest challenges um, maybe one that perhaps uh, other retailers out there are facing or will be facing, which is, you know, what is business post COVID-19 in the United States? And I think that it's natural, by the way, that we get consumed with what is happening right now. Um, but um, I think that 
fundamentally, we also must spend a major portion of our day uh, building what happens afterwards. Will the behavior in this nation change for six months to a year? Will people prefer to just not be socially in, in certain places? If so, how do you cater to them? Will the behavior change for that mother who's been at home with her two kids, being a teacher and yet keeping that full-time job in front of that computer and telling Sally and Michael to stop screaming and everything else? Um, you know, would she, would she change her purchasing habit or her um, social habit uh, because of something that she noticed that could be invested in these kids or whatever the case is? Um, so as a result of that, I think we are spending uh, and challenging ourselves to think more about that. How do you connect with the U.S. population post-COVID-19? What do you need? What products? What categories do you need to play in? How do you talk to them? How do you market to them? How do you invite them over? What does that look like? Um, so for us right now, to answer your question, we, we've pivoted uh, a great portion of our day thinking about that. Um, and answering those questions, I think, will put us in a stronger position than perhaps if we don't spend the energy to do so. Terrific. Um, I'm wondering, uh, Chuck, as a QSR leader, what's this very difficult business situation teaching you about um, yourself as a leader and your brand as an edible and how has it modified things for the way you lead and the way the brand is going to operate? You know, it's, it's a very good question. Um, you know, for, for me personally, I'll, I'll, I'll share that what I have learned is um, we live in a nation of truly resilient individuals. Um, and it's, it's so much easier sometimes to talk about the nation if you could just think of the people around you. So I'm really going to reflect back to the many associates within our building in Atlanta and the many associates that are in the field every single day and the many franchise partners. And I keep hearing the same thing. I haven't talked to one who says the world is coming to an end, right? Um, our conversations uh, always pivot towards a solution, an idea, a thought. And for me, I've realized that perhaps my strength has been built and continues to be encouraged by that surrounding voice, right? Uh, so I've learned that as much as I thought that I could sit in a corner and come up with ideas and just go sell them, for lack of a better word, I've realized that I'm actually uh, perhaps energized and the thinking bank that may exist um, internally in me is perhaps fueled by the deposit I obtained from the individual that I'm surrounded by. So I, I've learned that personally about me and I haven't had a chance to articulate it. So you forced me to think about it from that perspective. So, um, but beyond that in QSR itself, I think that um, the QSR industry must start thinking of several different factors that maybe before we knew would be key topics uh, to invest time in. Uh, but it was always, you know, you have to do X, but you just think it's 10 years from now, five years from now, it's, it's, it's here, but it's really not here. And that is e-commerce platform that is delivery. Those two components will be pivotal needs in the QSR industry, in my opinion, post COVID-19. I think of delivery as a GPS, uh, the ease of delivery, let's call it as a GPS. 
see, many of us, I think we obtain a GPS in our phone and, and we're able to use it as uh, a method of transportation, for lack of a better word, right? Uh, but then you realize the day your phone dies that it's hard to get from point A to point B because you're so <laughs> attached to it. So I think of delivery is that when you start obtaining X delivered to your household, I need charcoal delivered. I need a T-bone steak delivered. I need a box of fresh vegetable delivered. I need to cook a meal today, not three days from now, no planning today, delivered. I need ice delivered my special beverage delivered. If we get to that point, well, then why would I have to not use the delivery service at a high capacity? Here's how I'm gonna start thinking that way. If I'm selling a burger, how do I deliver it instantaneously? How do I get to that point? Um, because delivery is now just another method of tender. That's um, a really good point. Um particularly instantaneous delivery, you know, how to make that happen. Chuck, it has been so good to learn about this brand and all of its offerings and plans, which we truly hope will net great success, even in this challenging landscape. After all, our loves of fresh eats never ends, and you all at Edible have the innovative minds to get that to us, so we'll be watching your ascent. And we'll also be returning in just a few seconds with another interview with a pair of attorneys from Mesner Reeves who have the lowdown on restaurant liability issues amid this pandemic right after this. All right, now we are back and with the unprecedented events brought on by COVID-19 business restrictions, restaurant operators are really being forced to exercise some agility in the way they serve customers and direct their employees. Right now, we have two partners from the national law firm Messner Reeves with 10 U.S. offices who are here to specifically provide insights into the adjustments restaurant operators can make now without creating liability issues. Please welcome Michelle Harden and Allison Dodd from Messner Reeves. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Shelley. Allison and I are excited to be here today. Just at the outset, we do need to let you know that nothing that we say here today is intended to provide legal advice. To the extent that you need legal advice, we would urge you to reach out to an attorney who can help you to interpret the information that we're gonna be talking about today. And with that, we're excited to start answering some questions. It's a pleasure to have you. Now, let's just dive right in and, and have you please tell us what the top three questions maybe are that your restaurant clients are asking right now. Well, this is Michelle Harden, and I think it's, it's great that you said, what are the top three questions we're getting right now? Because it feels like right now those questions might change every day. Um, the guidance that we gave last week, let alone last month, is probably or possibly completely obsolete. Uh, and to that point, we're recording this on April the 9th, and, and just this morning, the CDC handed out new guidance that actually impacts folks in the food industry, restaurant workers. And so some of what we're talking about this morning is, is kind of hot off the presses. And the reality is that when you're listening to this, it might have already changed. So we will give you the best interpretation of the advice as of April, 19th, uh, April 9th that we can. And you'll, we'll give you some resources where you can keep an eye on how that guidance gets updated. Um, I would say currently the top three questions that we're getting center around how we can protect employees and customers. 
uh, how we can provide curbside and or delivery of meals, especially now that cocktails to go have become a thing, and how to take advantage of some of the relief that might be available at Youth Cares Act, such as the payroll protection program funds, or other financial relief, like how to talk to your landlord about some rent relief so that you can try to save some money uh, as you're trying to get through this, this un unbelievable time in our country's history. Allison, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I was just going to add that um, the guidance that Michelle was talking about this morning that just came out was that if you are an employee who has been exposed to someone with COVID-19, the CDC now says that that employee does not have to be excluded for a period of time. They can continue working until they develop symptoms if they are being pre-screened and the employer is regularly, regularly monitoring the employee that employee wears a mask and the employee is social distancing. So that is entirely new guidance that, like Michelle said, is hot off the press on April 9th um, before we um, restaurant workers were being excluded for a period of 14 days if they were exposed. And, you know, Michelle, feel free to step in, but I think what we would say from a industry best practice perspective is that, you know, restaurant companies should, should still consider um, that 14-day exclusion for people exposed with the knowledge that the CDC is, let, is having some leeway um, in um, letting employees continue to work. So what, what we would say is probably industry standard is this new CDC guidance. Industry best practice would be um, still um, excluding those employees for a period of time. That's fascinating and surprising. Um, now, restaurant operators are taking extra precautions to protect customers and employees, but we also know that some COVID-19 positive cases are resulting in no symptoms at all, which can be concerning to say the least. So do you anticipate that brands will be held liable if a customer's COVID-19 case is linked to a restaurant employee? And, and this is Allison, um, I'll, I'll take that one on and let Michelle add anything. Um, you know, in any, in any case where there is an illness associated with a restaurant, there is a possibility of a restaurant being held liable in some, in some fashion. With these COVID-19 cases, um, you know, we know they're in the environment and they're everywhere. It is, extremely difficult from a, what is a legal term called causation, meaning you have to link your illness to a specific restaurant or company um, to be liable for that sort of exposure. Um, I, I think we will see um, liability related to COVID-19. Um, what is remains to be seen is whether you know, plaintiff's attorneys will be able to link it to specific restaurants or specific companies when we know um, a lot of different people are being exposed and testing positive. So just because you have a restaurant employee testing positive and then a customer claims that they got it from that restaurant employee, you don't know if that, um, that customer was exposed to other people that tested positive. Um, so th those are kind of 
rabbit holes that are going to be going down as this um, kind of le new legal landscape um, unfolds. Michelle, well, do you have anything to add to that? The reality is whether you're in the restaurant industry or, or whatever your business may be, I have clients ask me all the time, how, what can I do to make sure I don't get sued? And, and the reality is that there's, there's not anything that you can do that assures that you won't get sued. What you can do is so that if, if there is a claim, if there's a claim uh, that, that COVID arose from a visit to your restaurant, what do you have in place to defend against that to try to make the case go away more quickly or perhaps to even before a lawsuit is filed, have a discussion with somebody and then they realize that they are barking up the wrong tree. So I think that the reality is that you, you do everything that you can to protect yourself. There, there will undoubtedly be litigation that comes through this and um, just making sure that, that you're following the guidance each that, that is coming out every day from the CDC to the best of your ability and, and conferring with experts who can help give you that guidance will probably go a long way. Okay, then conversely, what if a restaurant employee tests positive for COVID-19 and suspects that the case actually stems from contact with a restaurant customer at a drive-through window or a curbside pickup? So this is Michelle. Why don't I jump in and, and start with that and then Allison can, can wrap this one up. It will be interesting. I, I think there will be cases where there is a sense of a suspicion, at least, where somebody contracted covid I think that it will be difficult in almost every case to track the exposure to a certain instance, but you do, do hear of, of some really sad stories of people who are intentionally, you know, coughing in someone's face or doing something that results in the spread of COVID. I think regardless of the cause of the COVID, the, the reality is going to be what do you do if an employee tests positive regardless of where that case came from? And again, uh, if you're testing positive and you're asymptomatic, the new guidance from the CDC as of this morning, April the 9th, is that as long as you remain asymptomatic, you don't have any symptoms, you don't have a fever, you could be allowed to continue working. You should be wearing a mask. Uh, the restaurant should be using the increased uh, sanitation and disinfection that all restaurants should be using right now anyway, and we can talk more about that in a minute. But I don't know that it changes anything depending on whether they contracted it at work or on their way home from work. There could be workers' compensation ramifications if, if it could be determined that the infection came from the workplace setting. I'm going to let Allison maybe jump in and, and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and so to Michelle's point, what, what I would add, um, it, it is highly unlikely that a restaurant employee is going to be able to link an illness to a specific customer. But what an employer needs to be prepared to do is um, to you know have conversations with their restaurant employees and make it clear if they do not feel comfortable working in this environment, that their job is not in jeopardy and that they can stay home during this time frame. Um, you know, it, it doesn't qualify for this, you know, some states that have these, you know, mandatory sick leave, paid sick leaves. But I, I do think restaurant 
employers need to be cognizant of the risks their employees are taking. And if an employee doesn't feel comfortable stepping in um, and working in that environment with the known risk of exposure with, you know, people coming in and out of the restaurant or even coming through a drive-through, that they need to have the option of staying home. Um, and to Michelle's point about workers' compensation, for workers' compensation to apply, if an employee gets COVID-19 and can definitively link it to the restaurant, um, it is likely that they could claim workers' comp. Um, but as we kind of discussed earlier, that is going to be an extremely difficult task for the employee to definitively prove, um, even in a workers' comp setting. Um, so I, I think the moral of the story is that employers should have those honest conversations with their employees about the risks associated with serving customers and that potentially asymptomatic customers could be, you know, spreading this virus um, and that if they're willing to take the risk, they can remain in the restaurant and working. All right. Uh, now, as we've heard, some of these restaurants are getting really creative with their curbside menus, as seen with all the restaurant patrons flocking to social media with images of curbside cocktail pickup. In other words, customers are really eager to order from brands with cocktails to go. So I'm wondering what do you all provide as advice to restaurant executives of brands that are offering cocktails to go? So this is Allison, and, and what I would I would say before I turn it over to Michelle is I um, would implore restaurant companies to check the guidance from their state on a daily basis and very closely monitor what the state is allowing and what the state is providing and whether there are any um, sort of requirements that the restaurant companies need to meet before they can serve those cocktails to go because this is an ever-evolving situation it's an ever-changing situation and it's very novel that um, you know certain restaurants are even allowed to offer these curbside cocktails and I'll turn it over to Michelle so Allison took the words right out of my mouth I, you know I think this is a great point on a great point a great time in our call this morning to talk about the absolute necessity to use the resources that are available to you for guidance, whether it is on this question of curbside cocktails to go or going back to our, our last topic where we were talking about uh, protection of customers and employees and we sort of drifted into workers' compensation and some of the guidance that's being offered to employers. One of the things that's really important to note is that under legislation that's been passed as the result of the coronavirus, the COVID situation, there are new guidelines about what employers do have to pay uh, certain employees for. And, and it can even extend to people who have to stay home to teach their children uh, because the schools have all closed. And there, is, there, is, um, there are programs that have relief for the workers that would require the company at some point to be paying the workers and then taking tax credits. And that can put an incredible strain on the, the restaurant, on the owner, um, whether we're talking about this, this relief under the legislation for coronavirus or you know, jumping back to what we're talking about right now, talking about how you maintain consistency with the standards wherever you may be as far as what's required for delivery of alcohol at the curbside. 
there was a, a funny uh, piece that I saw in a newspaper this week that said, mason jars are okay for the delivery of alcohol at the curbside, but Ziploc bags are not. So <laughs> there's, there's interesting guidance kind of across the board and you really have to stay with liquor licensing in particular, it's all the way down to the state and local level uh, as opposed to the national level. And so it's really important to be looking at whether it's your local state restaurant association or even um, down at the county level, the health department guidelines. It's just super important to be following up and making sure you're keeping an eye on that guidance. Aside from predicting a run on mason jars, I just want to open this up a little bit more based on what you were saying there, Michelle. Uh, just generally, what are some ways operators can limit any liability issues in general? Well, I think that, and it's Michelle and I, I'll just, I'll answer briefly and, and let Allison jump in, but interesting questions come up. So if you are delivering curbside to a customer who has come to pick up the food as opposed to using a delivery service, so the customer drives up to you and the customer is notably intoxicated. Certainly you could incur liability if you then continue to serve just like a, um, a bar owner may incur liability for over serving a patron. So I think that the best thing that you can do is have some guidelines that you put in place at your restaurant that can cover sort of these possible situations Hopefully you're not seeing a lot of that, but you know, empower your employees to make judgment calls. And if they think that it's not a good idea to be serving someone, um, they may need to make that determination sometimes. I think for the most part that we're seeing that this is working relatively well. I'm not hearing a lot of stories about horror stories or claims relating to taking cocktails away from the curb. But Allison, maybe jump in here. Have you heard anything, any stories you wanna share? I haven't heard anything about, you know, alcohol related issues, but what I would say, you know, kind of the larger liability issue is what restaurants can do. Um, I mean, you're, as Michelle said a few questions earlier, there's no way to absolutely guarantee no liability in any situation. But what you can do is, you know, take all the necessary precautions, use that CDC guidance, go above and beyond that CDC guidance, you know, the last thing a restaurant wants is a, you know, a poor health department inspection around these timeframes and then have someone with COVID-19 see that health department inspection and say, well, they have poor, you know, hygiene practices in the store. So I clearly got it here. And then we open that up um, to what's called discovery. So you, you get to, um, you know, look into restaurant practices um, and they'll poke any holes where they can. So I think the best guidance we can give is to is to really focus on sanitation and hygiene, um, employee wellness, um, employee exclusion policies, and taking that very seriously during this time. Using EPA-approved products that you know are effective against coronavirus, things like that. Practicing social distancing, you know, disinfecting on a more frequent basis than typical. Um, those are the best ways restaurant operators can limit liability. Great. What kind of advice do you have for restaurant owners and leaders regarding the payroll protection program that's part of the 
U.S. government's CARES relief package, or really for that matter, any other financial relief currently being made available to restaurant brands? Shelley, it's Michelle, and I want to just jump back to our last question because I feel like we sort of missed one really important thing um, as far as uh, avoiding liability with these curbside deliveries of alcohol. And that is, um, we didn't even think to mention the fact that you ought to be checking the ID of the person you're serving at the curbside. So one, one clear way to, to find your way into liability would be serving an underaged drinker. And I think that the risk of that situation arising is probably greater than the intoxicated person that I talked about. So the, the top line of your alcohol at the curb policy really has to be that you're following the same guidance you would if you were serving inside the restaurant including checking those IDs and making sure you're not serving someone who's underage. With that, we can jump to the question that you actually asked, which is, you know, how to get relief, what relief might be available. This is a point where I would say, you know, look at the National Restaurant Association site. It is just absolutely full of fabulous resources for restaurant owners. It includes links to different programs that are available. The CARES program is one of the programs that's available, this payroll protection program that started rolling out almost a week ago now on April the 3rd. What I'm hearing from people in the industry is that while we all thought that this was going to really be helpful, some of the requirements in the CARES payroll protection program, like keeping 90% of your workforce employed, during the time that you're using the CARES money, um, some of the guidance that is in the program makes it really difficult for restaurants to qualify for the monies that might be there. We're also hearing that it's more difficult to get the applications through the bank systems than everyone thought it was going to be a week ago. This is another one of those changing landscapes. We're hearing that there's gonna be a new relief program coming out that hopefully will target the smaller businesses and particularly the restaurants and give relief. But I really would suggest checking that National Restaurant Association page frequently and keeping an eye on what might be available. The other thing that is interesting, um, in addition to the, to the CARES program, there, there have been other relief packages passed. There are emergency relief packages through the Small Business Association that are more traditional loans that would require repayment, uh, but with somewhat lightened or lessened standards for qualifying for those loans. And then we're seeing that both at the state level, there are state programs that can really provide some relief for these small businesses. And there are also industry programs. And, and on several of the pages I look at every day, People are trying to set up programs that would have grant money available to help small businesses and particularly restaurants during these really difficult times. And then last but not least, I guess that I would say, you know, pull out your lease and look at what it provides for and, and get some assistance in somebody uh, if you need it, but talk to your landlord. Um, landlords in some places are not being permitted to start eviction type proceedings but in some places are even being mandated to give some rent relief. And so it's really important to be talking to your landlord and finding out if you can come to some sort of an agreement about not paying rent or paying a lessened amount of rent, if that's gonna make the difference between being able to stay open and shut your doors. Allison, what else would you add to that? I think the only thing that I would, would add, um, I think it's a little confusing, the, the CARES relief package but it is retroactive. So if you have, if restaurants have already laid off um, workers, which we know is 
happening, um, they can rehire those workers and it is retroactive up until late February. So you can bring workers back on and not be penalized and still fall within the CARES relief package. Um, I don't think a lot of companies are considering that as an option um, and just think they don't qualify for CARES relief because 75% of what has to be included in this CARES relief package has to apply to payroll um, and not just, you know, not rent and all of that. That's the other 25%. So you can bring workers back and then use that payroll protection program to, you know, compensate them on a retroactive basis and then going forward through June. Um, so I think that's an important point. And like Michelle said, the National Restaurant Association has all of that guidance on there. They're updating it frequently. Um, you know, it, it's April 9th today. This could change in a week. But um, as of today, that's that's what we're hearing. Um, but obviously, the National Restaurant Association is keeping that up to date on a daily basis. Thanks so much to both of you, Allison Dodd and Michelle Harden of Messner Reeves. I think you helped a lot of restaurateurs out with your information today, and we truly appreciate the time. And, and that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the podcast. And I want to thank all of you for both listening and doing what you do best. Great food, even in these tough times. Take care, all. <laughs>